Our scripture reading this afternoon in connection with the sermon on Acts 2, verse 39, to you is the promise and to your children is first of all from Isaiah 59, secondly from Acts 2, and thirdly from Acts 16. A couple of verses from Isaiah. There are more of these verses in Isaiah about the promises that go out to God's covenant people, also to the children of those who believe. And so we read, first of all, from Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21. If this is a pew Bible, that's on page 787. Hear the word of God. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And then we turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, first of all, verses 14 to 18. The word of the Lord, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven apostles, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Then going verse to verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself." 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Then we turn to Acts 16, verse 25 to 34, and we're interested in especially in what the Luke says here about those who received baptism. Luke's, uh, Acts 16, verse 25, uh, the Word of God. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of God as we find that in the 39th verse of Acts chapter 2, where Peter says, and the word of God reads, For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is God's word. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's no secret that Christianity is quite divided over the question whether, over the question of what we are going to do later on this afternoon, namely to baptize this newborn baby. Many would suggest that we have no business baptizing those who have not professed their faith yet. There's no biblical basis for that, justi for, for, that would justify that. They believe the New Testament data is quite silent about this whole matter. Well, I, for one, and we as a church, beg to differ. I most adamantly believe that when you line up the data from the Gospels, for example, Jesus blessing the children, and from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, he's talking about families that are divided, marriages that are divided, and he talks about the children, and he says they're holy, and by holy he doesn't mean necessarily that they are regenerate, they're believers, but he means they're separated, they're dedicated to God. That's what holy always means in the Bible. Or think of Ephesians 6. Paul is addressing the Ephesian church, in the sixth chapter, he addresses especially the children who are part of the church. He says, children, you got to do this. you got to honor your parents. There's one line between old and new covenants, a line which sees children of believers belonging to the people of God 
and called, just like the adults, to a life of faith and a life of repentance. And so too, Acts 2, verse 39, here we have more conclusive evidence. This is so. Especially when we look at what happens later in Acts, I do not believe that God has left us in doubt. Let's look carefully at that this afternoon. The truth of God's Word comes to you under this theme this afternoon. The promise is to you and to your children. We'll talk about the nature of the promise and the recipients of this promise. The nature and the recipients of this promise. Brothers and sisters, what is it that's happening in Acts 2 when Peter pronounces these words of Acts 2, verse 39? Well, it's the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. The promised Spirit has been poured out, and Peter is delivering a lengthy homily to explain this event. I still remember to this day, the first time about 44 years ago, that I had to preach on Acts 2. It was the day of Pentecost. And I thought to myself, as a young guy, and young guys think they all know things better, Peter, you're preaching the wrong sermon. You're preaching about Jesus Christ. You're supposed to preach about the Holy Spirit. Until I realized that was exactly Peter's point. The Scriptures are always about Christ. From beginning to end, they're about Christ. Even the role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus Christ and to have us extol Him. The Spirit is like the floodlight on a building He doesn't want the attention. He wants the attention to be on Jesus Christ. And so Peter's message is, on the day of Pentecost, that Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who has poured out His Spirit, who has come with visible signs of wind and tongues and fires. He comes to his point in 2 verse 33, Jesus, this Jesus, who has been exalted to the heavens, has received the promised Holy Spirit. And what has He done now? He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and are hearing. The tongues, the wind, you're seeing and hearing that? You're hearing this language, foreign languages? Where does this come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying, in light of that event and all the gospel events, that Old Testament Judaism, Old Testament religion, has found a new center, a new focus in Jesus of Nazareth, and they need to approach Yahweh and see Yahweh through Jesus. But the other message, the message that would upset this largely Jewish audience, was about the tragic mistake the Jewish people had made. They thought that for the sake of the future of Israel, they had to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. They thought they had to crucify Him. But Peter's message is, this Jesus was the Son of God, the God of Israel. God has made Him both Lord and Messiah. You looked for the Messiah all these years. Well, you just killed Him. You murdered Him. And God has exalted Him to God's right hand That's the person you crucified. It was a stunning message. But it produced a good result because notice what happened according to verse 37. Luke says the audience was cut to the heart. It means they were convicted of sin and they were conscience stricken. And so they asked very anxiously, what should we do now? 
Peter's reply is they must repent, completely change their mind about Jesus and their attitude to Him, and humble themselves because of sin and be baptized in Jesus' name, submitting even to the humiliation of baptism. And for them it was humiliation because for hundreds of years the Jewish leaders had, taught, had said and taught and practiced in the synagogue that whenever Gentiles would want to come into Judaism, and that happened periodically, they were to be baptized as a sign of the new life. It was called proselyte baptism that would serve as a clear public token of the repentance of the Gentiles as they came into Judaism. And so today it would be a sign of their repentance, leaders of the church, and of their faith in Jesus. And if they would do that, says Peter, they would receive two free gifts of God. One, the forgiveness of sins, even forgiveness for crucifying Jesus, and two, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a message of grace. They would be forgiven even for their sin of crucifying Jesus. And they would be given the Spirit who would regenerate them, dwell in them, and transform them entirely. It's a great message of inclusion. They should not imagine the gift of the Spirit as only for those apostles or only for those 120 disciples who had waited 10 days for the Spirit to come or for any elitist group or even for a certain nation. God places no such limitation on His offer or His gift. Nations will be called. There will be room even for you and me, even those with heinous sins and no merit at all can be included. The promise is extended to all those who now regret the crucifixion of Jesus. And notice, Peter says, it's also for your children. Literally, he says, the promise is for you and for your offspring. Think about that. There are some surprising things there in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4, but this is not surprising. Was that not always the way it was in the Old Testament era? Whenever God embraced people, He embraced those people's children. When Abraham is told in Genesis about God's covenant, he's told not only that he and Sarah and the other adults in his household are in that covenant and are to be circumcised, but also their children, even those bought with his money, even servant children. By the way, it's why we baptize also adopted children. Because Abraham is told, not only the children who are born to you, but even the children bought with your money who are brought into your household are to be circumcised. Abraham is told very expressly to circumcise all the male children. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Think of the Psalms that rejoice over the gift of children. Think of Psalm 78, which we sang. When God embraces a people, He embraces the people completely. Not just the adults, not just those of a mature age, but the people completely. Whether they might all embrace Him is another question. Adults and children alike, they don't all do that. 
Because think of it if this, how it would be if this was not true. Then before this, all these Jewish people would have regarded their children as part of the covenant and part of the covenant promises. But if the promise on the day of Pentecost is not for their children, this would be a dramatic day of change for them. Suddenly, their children would be excluded. They would not be welcome. And church would be an adults-only kind of club. One author puts it this way. He says, let us read our New Testaments with an understanding of the original audience. If we stand in the sandals of the first century Jewish and proselyte followers, how would they have reacted to the claim that believers' little children are excluded from the people of God? Imagine the shock of Christmas, the synagogue leader of Acts 18, who believes on Friday those children are in covenant with God and fully part of the people of God. Then after Paul preaches, he finds out in the fulfillment of all the promises, in the fullness of time, in the messianic kingdom and glory of Israel, his little children have now been excluded, no part. Do you not think that if such a change, a radical change, happened in the world of Judaism and New Testament Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, if that would have happened, don't you think there would be somebody who would ask for some clarification? Just a minute, Paul. Just a minute, Peter. Or there would be an opponent of the apostles. Read Paul's writings. There's always fighting some opponents or the other. They're always looking for something. One of those opponents, many of those opponents, don't you think they would have lifted up this objection and thrown it in the face of Paul or Peter or John or James? It doesn't happen because all remained in the new Israel on this point as it was in the old Israel. In both, children and young people are raised in the fear of the Lord and expected to respond with faith and obedience. Isaiah 59 and more such passages say that very powerfully. Much may change when the Spirit is poured out. But this will not change. God will embrace His children and their children. Now you might say, well, that depends on how we understand the word promise. The promise is to you and to your children. But even Baptist authors, I've researched many of them, the ones who write about these chapters see no different meaning than we do. One such Baptist author writes, there is only one single promise that, according to the New Testament writers, has been unfolding as the plan of God since it was first announced in the Old Testament. He points out that about 40 times when the New Testament wants to summarize the Old Testament message, it uses one word, promise. Another one argues for the unity of the promise in all of Scripture and writes, the promise oath continues unchanged in essence throughout the history of redemption. In the ESV, the word promise occurs twice before this. In 1 verse 4, the Lord Jesus speaks about the promise of the Father. And He refers back to what He said already in the days of John the Baptist, that there would be a day when He would pour out His Spirit, baptizing not just with water, but with the Spirit of God, which is exactly what Pentecost is. It's the fulfillment of those words early on in the Gospels. The Spirit will come and baptize with the Spirit and with water. 
And in 2 verse 33, Peter talks about Christ receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So clearly, promise speaks about all the spiritual and blessed realities that God has always promised to His people. New birth, spiritual life, eternal life, blessings in this life, and blessings forever in the life to come. That's what promise is all about. To whom is this promised? To those who were there on Pentecost Day and responded with guilt and awe to the message of Peter. To them and their children is the promise. It's the promise of new life. It's the promise of the fulfillment of new life as centered in Jesus Christ. It's the promise of everything that Judaism was about and prophesied. It comes in Jesus Christ. It's the promise of the presence and power of the Spirit out of which flow justification, sanctification, being a member of the new covenant community with all its benefits, and eventually glorification on the new heaven and the new earth. All that is what is promised to believers and their children. Now, don't be mistaken. The promise is not the reality. The mere fact that our children have the promise does not necessarily mean that every child that is baptized experiences the reality of what is promised. Children, like adults, need to respond in faith and obedience. Baptism is, as our confession suggests, a sign of that which is signified, and that which is signified, that which is pointed to by baptism, is life and salvation. But what is the connection between the sign and the thing that is signified, between the water and that life and salvation? What's the connection? Faith is the connection between that which is signified and the reality. That means everybody needs to believe. Everyone needs to be born again. This precious new baby will soon show sinful patterns and attitudes. She needs to be born again. There is no one who gets into life eternal without being born again, said Jesus to that outstanding man in Israel. That's why the second sentence of the form for baptism which we'll read later. I, I, I swear we, we, we skip that sentence. We forget about that sentence. It says, we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. What do you think? We're going to go to a new heaven and a new earth, and you're not going to have to be people who are new in Christ? All of creation will be renewed in Christ. Don't you have to be renewed in Christ? It's why the promise is not a guarantee either. It's not the reality, but it's not a guarantee either. Baptism is not an absolute guarantee. What is it that brings about the reality? It's faith. The children of the covenant community are no different than the adults. They need to respond in faith and repentance again and again in our lives. Whether you're five, whether you're 50, whether you're seven, whether you're 70, you need to respond again and again in faith and repentance. Promises, to be sure, are valuable. Imagine the powerful, loving God of heaven and earth makes promises to me and to you and to your children, life 
and blessings. But realize those promises always become reality through faith. If I make some wonderful promises to members of my family, members of my family need to believe that I'm able to bring them bring about the very things I promise, and secondly, that I love them enough to do everything in my power to bring them about those things. So too with God. God's promises are always conditional on faith. If you or your children are to receive life and blessings eternal, you and your children do need to believe that God can and will bring about the very things that He's promised. He can, and He loves you well enough to do it. Faith is trusting God to do what He has promised because we are convinced by His provisions that God is both willing and able to keep His Word. The problem is that our world, our generation, has no idea how powerful a promise is from God. Without a promise, all you have is a hope. It might happen. It might not. Those things the Scriptures talk about, those things you're hoping for, maybe they'll happen, maybe they won't. Without a promise, what do you have? You have a hope. To use an example, I'm told, and I read it often, that there are men in this world who are so very wealthy that they've decided, if, even if they give away millions, if not billions of their dollars, they will, that won't affect their lives. So they're in the process of giving away a lot of their money. What's the chance that you might get some of that money? The chance is zero. You know it. Nothing. But imagine that Warren Buffett, I understand he's a good Christian gentleman, Imagine that he would promise you or one of your children $5 million when they turn 40. That would be a nice promise. Without the promise, you got nothing. With the promise, you're going to come collecting when you're 40 years old or your child is 40. And if you believe he's trustworthy, you'll be banking on it all that time. But without a promise, you know it. You'll get nothing. It's a vain hope. It's not going to happen. That's the power of a promise. Well, so too, boys and girls, young people, this is your privilege. You get a promise from the God of heaven and earth, from a promise from the God who is faithful to all His promises. This is better than having a, a friend in the White House or a friend on Parliament Hill. This is the God of heaven and earth who made you, without whom you have nothing, who promises you, I promise. Your life may become tough, and you'll go through some valleys and some hardships and some suffering, but there's a better day coming. There's a greater future coming, and I promise that future is yours. The whole Christian life depends on the promises of God. It's the power of a promise from a trustworthy and loving God. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. In the words of the hymn, by faith, by faith, 
this mountain shall be moved. And the power of the gospel shall prevail. For we know in Christ all things are possible. For all who call upon his name, we will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. But let's think about the, the, a little longer about the phrase, you and these children. The promise is for you and for your children these recipients of this promise. You see, given the larger context, it really makes little sense to maintain that children are somehow not included in what's happening here. I mean, think of it. In 2 verse 17, Peter quotes from Joel and speaks about how the, the sons and daughters will prophesy. It happens on Pentecost. Your young men shall dream dreams, Joel says. He says this is fulfilled today, On Peter says, on the day of Pentecost. Young people are prophesying, but are we really supposed to believe that right after that we're told they're not included yet? Really? Besides, Acts 2 verse 39 says it. The promise is for you and for your children. Is that not explicit proof? How many times does God have to say something to be true? Isn't once enough? If there's only once, I think there's more, but if there's. The word for children that's used in Acts 2 verse 39, does it designate the age of the child? It simply refers to the offspring of parents, their posterity, whatever their age, however many days they may be. In discussion, some will try to deflect the attention away to what follows. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And at times, they speak about this in a way that suggests this means the promises to everyone, wherever they are. But that makes the promise useless in general, just another part of the evangelism task. Then what's, part of, what's the point of this passage? So what is meant by these further expressions? What's the impact of these expressions? Think about it. On the day of Pentecost, it's the disciples and the first believers who are gathered in Jerusalem. To them is the promise and to their children. The question might come up, how specific is this? What about when these apostles go to other places, to other Jews and Gentiles, and preach and spread the message of salvation. Is the promise valid for those people as well? Yes, says Peter, and for all who are far off. What does that mean? Does Peter maybe have in mind we in North America who might believe 2,000 years later? I doubt it. Peter didn't know that. You have to be mindful of the fact that in Acts 1, verse 8, the Lord Jesus says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How far does that go? Well, by the time we get to the last chapter, what Luke refers to as the end of the earth, Paul is in Rome. That, in his mind, is pretty much the end of the earth as they knew it at that time, the end of the known world at the time. 
Peter is looking beyond the day of Pentecost and saying that as the gospel goes out, the genuine offer of the gospel and all its promises will be real for all those whom God calls to himself and to their children. The Holy Spirit leads Peter to be mindful of what would happen on the early missionary journeys. That's why we read together from Acts 16, where Paul and Timothy are. Where is that? It's in Philippi. How far away is Philippi? Well, to get to Philippi from Jerusalem today, you have to go north through Lebanon and Syria. You have to go across Turkey and up to northern Greece. That's about 9,700 kilometers, 6,000 miles. That's travels between Jerusalem to Philippi. Would that qualify as a place afar off? I think so. It's close to Rome. If you would travel by a bus today at an average speed of 50 kilometers an hour, it would take about 200 hours. On foot, as Paul probably did it, at an average walking speed of four miles an hour, it would take about 1,500 hours, about 62 days. Is that a place afar off in that world? Yes, I'm sure it is. These people in Philippi, we can agree, are far off. Well, how does it go with the spread of the gospel in Philippi? We read about the Philippian jailer and his conversion. But did you notice that in that passage, you can read it again later, but in that passage, even though they all hear the word, the only one who is said to believe is the jailer. But then verse 33 reads, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. He believes and he is baptized with his family. And verse 34 reads, And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The NIV has been misleading us for a long time. It actually is very wrong when it translates this. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The Greek didn't say that. It says he rejoiced along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Similarly, you can read the story of Lydia. Acts 16, verses 14 and 15. In verse 14 of Acts 16, it speaks about the Lord opening Lydia's heart. And as a result, in verse 15, she and her household are baptized. These members of her household were, were baptized by virtue of her profession of faith and baptism. And if you think that's odd, think of the many passages in the Gospels when Jesus heals people, not because they all believe, but because somebody believed. Centurion comes along and he believes and his, his son is healed. Does his son believe? I don't know. It doesn't say that. This pattern in Acts, by the way, my successor, my colleague, Dr. Den Hollander, just a bit of information here, a tidbit. He wrote about this in a book that he and I edited and authored part of it, parts of it, called Children and the Church. You can Amazon that, and you can find also a wonderful article that he wrote about these passages in Acts. 
But the point is that 2 verse 39 is, the point 2 verse 39 is making is that this is the pattern. This is how it goes in the New Testament age. The promise is not only to the believers, but also to the children of believers on the day of Pentecost. So it will go as the gospel goes out to, to Jews and Gentiles, and the missionaries go out to the end of the earth. Whenever the gospel goes to those places, the gospel goes to those places, and a man or woman embraces the gospel, the promise is not only to them, but also to their children. Why? Because God knows these people are going to be transformed by the gospel, and they will want to speak with their children about the gospel. They will be like Abraham, and they will want to teach their children about the gospel. And if they teach the children the gospel, even if they don't, there's the power of the promise which will transform hearts and transform lives. Lives. The promise is to them. God says to Abraham, God says to every believer, do that as leader in your house. Believe in me, and I and all that I have is yours. It's always been God's ways. Where in the Bible does it say that that has stopped? We live in an excessively individualistic age and that's our problem. We put our individualistic glasses on and we read Scripture and we read it as individualists. People in the Bible were not individualists. They were collectives. They thought in terms of family. They thought in terms of their nation. God speaking to the nation first, to His people first, before He speaks to the individual. That's the first century world. They were so corporately aware, a man and a woman are connected to their children, to their community, to their country, and that's how they read the Scripture. And of course they didn't say, yeah, well, what about the gospel comes to nations, to people, to families. And all who are afar off, it applies to Asia Minor, uh, to Rome, to Philippi, even today to Canada and around the world. It is the rule God embraces a person totally, not only him or her, but also that which is theirs and those who are theirs. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It reiterates that message. The gospel's going to go out. God's going to call people to himself. They all will have the promise as they respond to that call. The point is, when the gospel goes out, it's a real offer. We should never argue that it's only a real offer for the elect or for those who believe. It's a real offer. It's valid. The promises are valid even when your children have long given up going to church. The promises are theirs. There's no expiration date. You can cash that in. You can say, God, please lead the lives of my children, my grandchildren. You can spread the word among your neighbors and say, believe in the Lord your God, believe in the Lord God, see His Son, and God will make promises to you. And those promises will have an impact on your children. They will be for them as well. The point is, if you argue, as too many have argued in our circles, that the Scriptures do not support infant baptism, then I'm afraid you don't really understand the lines of Scripture. And you know what happens? You shortchange your children. You shortchange the power of the upbringing you can give them. You shortchange also your grandchildren. 
You stop them from seeing God's promises to them and from seeing that those promises are signed and sealed in their baptism. Martin Luther said more than once, whenever he doubted, whenever he wavered, whenever he was in trouble, he would say, baptizatus sum, which means I have been baptized. God promises God doesn't lie, believe in Him. Even when they become adults and don't seem to believe or far from God, it's not because God lied. His promises are true. It's a bit like the law and the flesh. The problem is not the law. The problem is our flesh, our frailty, our weakness. The same problem here. The problem is not the promises. The problem is not baptism. The problem is us. We don't always believe and embrace the promises of God. Of course, the point is well made. Churches that practice infant baptism still need to emphasize faith and conversion. Children are not included simply because they are part of the social and ethnic club which they go along with. They need to believe and repent. You know what we are if we take away faith and repentance? You know what we are collectively? We're just a Dutch-Canadian ethnic club. We're a social group. What makes us a church? It's the doctrine of faith and conversion. The doctrine which says, whether you're seven or seventy, whether you're nine or ninety, you must believe and you must repent again and again. Hold on to God. It's often said God doesn't have grandchildren, and that's true. What does it mean? Well, I think it means something like this. You know what happens? If you're blessed in life in this way, then you get married and you have children. You have children. And you know what happens? Those children, they have grandchildren. It kind of happens automatically. Grandchildren, you get automatically. The children, you have to, well, you're involved in this act of love and you're involved in raising them, but grandchildren you get automatically. Well, God doesn't have grandchildren. It means God doesn't get grandchildren automatically. Every successive generation needs to personally lay hold of the truth of the gospel. It's not so that if you're a child of God, your children will automatically be children of God. No, they need to embrace this God and love this God and serve this God and live for Him and know that their lives are hidden in Christ. Every child needs to be taught about God and His Son. The Bible needs to be an open book where in every family where baptism happens. And you know what? Already at an early age, they'll embrace that. I have enough grandchildren and children to know that when they're young and you just read them the story Bible, they're not going to turn around and say to you, well, that story about Jonah, I don't know about that. Really? They're not going to say that. God says this. It's the Bible. My teacher said so. That's how they grow up. They will believe. The challenge is, will they continue to believe? That's why every generation needs to respond in faith and repentance. What do you believe? It's really about their heart. And their heart 
has to do with faith and repentance. Those broken, those stubborn hearts need to be broken. What do they want? What do they believe? That needs to be the focus of raising our children. It's not just a matter of feeding them information, information out, information, information in, information out. It's a matter of connecting heart to heart and knowing that God connects with us heart to heart. We have so age-stratified our society that we don't see this anymore, but whether they're five or 50, we need to believe and repent again and again. We need to embrace God who has so loved us and see His love. He loves even your children. I stand 100% behind all the evangelism and missional activities of the church today. That is as it ought to be. The church doesn't exist just for itself. But while that is true, do not think that that means that we should overlook the significant work that happens in our homes and our church for the spread of the gospel. Said one man, I do not hesitate to claim that far and away, the largest part of the Christian church at any time or place are those who were born and raised in Christian families. Let me repeat that. I do not hesitate that far and away, the largest part of the Christian church at any time or place are those who were born and raised in Christian families. The harvest received that God receives in the church through the generations, he was saying, far exceeds that which the harvest reached from outside achieves. It means we should not overlook the great significance of the things we do in our homes and in our churches, the great significance of the small and ordinary things we do in life. Reading the Bible, cultivating faith and repentance. Do we do that regularly in our homes, in our families, at our meals? Speaking with our children not just about things, but about God, His Son, His love, His promises. A father's admonition, an elder's voice, a brother's rebuke, a grandfather's reminder, the teacher's correction, the pastor's catechesis, these and more are all very, very significant. Don't overlook the power of God's covenantal ways. Precisely because faith is important, the church and the family also nurture that faith, and they pray for God's blessing over all such nurture. It means you need to have an eye for the greatness of the Father's love to you and to your children, and you need to communicate that again and again. In the words of another hymn, Oh, we are the people of God, with the freedom of hope in our hearts. How great is the love of the Father. This is the song of the redeemed, the ransomed and the free given life at such a price. This is love. Amen.